Well, once a man, he walked into the drugstore and he asked the pharmacist if he had anything for the hiccups. Well, the pharmacist, he walks around the counter and he slaps this man across the face three times. Bam, bam, bam. Well, the customer was shocked. Why in the world did you do that? The pharmacist answered, he said, well, you don't have the hiccups anymore, do you? The fellow replied, no, but my wife out in the car, she still does. <laughs> well, that was a bit of a groaner, wasn't it? Let me try it again. Here we go. If at first you don't succeed. How many pharmacists does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> One, but he has to do it three times a day for five days. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stop there, three strikes, and you're out. But here's why I bring up a pharmacist. A pharmacist, he doesn't examine patients or diagnose illnesses or write prescriptions. That's the doctor's job. The doctor prescribes the medicine. The role of a pharmacist is simply to carry out the doctor's orders. And this is the job of the church. Jesus is the great physician. The church is just the pharmacist. Dr. Jesus is the one who puts the stethoscope to the chest of the church. He diagnoses the ailment and writes the prescription. In fact, that's what we have here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Jesus writes seven prescriptions to seven sick churches. Our job is to simply read the prescriptions and follow the doctor's orders. But that's not what was happening in Pergamos. Here's the title of today's message, The Wrong Dose in Pergamos. This was a church that had failed to fill the prescription. They were compromising the will of God. You see, they were writing their own prescriptions. They were doling out their own meds, you might say, instead of following doctor's instructions. Well, Pergamos was the third of Jesus' letters to these seven churches. First, we had loveless in Ephesus. Then the second letter was titled, Suffering in Smyrna. Now Pergamos is the third church in Asia to visit the doctor. Now understand, in 70 AD, when the Jewish uprising in Israel was squashed by the Roman general Titus and his legion, the Jews were scattered all over the world. The diaspora, the great dispersion had begun. Many of the Jews, they left Jerusalem and its suburbs for the uttermost parts of the world. Many of these Jews were Christians. And one of the places that these believers migrated were to the Greco-Roman cities of Asia Minor, that area that's known today as Western Turkey. This Roman province became a hotbed for Christian activity. Churches sprung up all across the region. The Apostle John, the last of Jesus' twelve disciples, actually became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And when Jesus chose to send letters to seven of these churches, it was appropriate that he would do so through the pen of John. Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamos begins in chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things, says he, who has the sharp two-edged sword. Pergamos, or Pergamum, was a city about a hundred miles north of Ephesus, 50 miles north of Smyrna. 
It's at 12 miles inland off the Aegean Sea. Today, the Roman ruins of Pergamos are located on a mountain northeast of the Turkish city of Bergama. In John's day, Pergamos was already a tourist attraction. It was located near the ruins of the ancient port of Troy. You remember the recipients of that famous Trojan horse? In the year 100 AD, at the time of John's writing, Pergamos wasn't the largest city in Asia, or even the most beautiful or the most prosperous. But for the prior 250 years, it had been the Roman capital, the center of the province. Pergamos had the richest history and heritage of all the cities in the region. Roman author Pliny called Pergamos by far the most distinguished city in Asia. The ancient city of Pergamos was built on top of a cone-shaped mountain. Its Acropolis, or its high point, towered 100 feet above the Caicos River Valley. The Acropolis at Pergamos was home to a plethora of idolatrous shrines and religious temples. Pergamos was the hotbed for paganism in this Roman province. In fact, when Babel, the birthplace of spiritual rebellion against God, fell to the, to the Persians in 535 B.C., the Babylonian priests, they moved their headquarters and they set up shop in Pergamos. The ancient cult of Nimrod moved west. The worship of Nimrod's wife, Semiramis, and their son, Tammuz, found a new home in Pergamos. No wonder the Lord says in verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Boy, at the heart of Satan's throne, high above the city of Pergamos and its Acropolis, set the city's signature monument, an altar dedicated to the chief of all the Greek gods, Zeus. The altar of Zeus set on top of the Acropolis. Zeus was portrayed by a bull, and at the center of this altar was a hollowed-out bronze bull. The bull was often heated like an oven, and sacrifices were placed inside. The altar of Zeus was actually a colonnaded courtyard. It stood tall. It was visible from a great distance. The famous altar became synonymous with the city. What the Space Needle is to Seattle or the Arch is to St. Louis, the altar of Zeus was to Pergamos. Today you can actually visit this altar at the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. In the late 19th century, German archaeologists working in Asia, they dug up the altar of Zeus and they reassembled it stone by stone back in Germany. In fact, when Hitler came to power, a Nazi architect, Albert Speer, was commissioned to build a stadium to host his propaganda rallies. Speer used the altar of Zeus as inspiration for the Zeppelin Tribunal in Nuremberg. Zeppelin Field is where Hitler announced his plan to exterminate the Jews. The term, the final solution, was first coined from the podium that was inspired by the altar of Zeus. You see, the bull was replaced with Nazi incinerators and the fires of Zeus with the flames of the Holocaust. Later, Albert Speer was given the title, the Nazi who said sorry. At the Nuremberg war trial, Speer admitted, it's hard to recognize the devil when he has his hand on your shoulder. He said that of Hitler, obviously. Jesus, though, had no problem recognizing Satan. He saw his influence over Pergamos, and so he calls it where Satan's throne dwells. 
But the altar of Zeus was just one of the reasons the title Satan's throne could be applied to Pergamos. The city boasted of other temples as well. In 29 BC, a temple was built to honor the Roman emperor Augustus. Like Smyrna, Pergamos was a center for emperor worship. There was also a temple to Athena, the goddess of wisdom and academic knowledge. Pergamos was home to one of antiquity's largest libraries. It contained 200,000 handwritten volumes. The collection later became a gift from Mark Anthony to his mistress in Egypt, Cleopatra. The Pergamites wrote on calf skins or parchments. In fact, the term parchment can be derived from this name, Pergamos. And ironically, just down the street from the Temple of Wisdom was the Temple to Dionysius or Bacchus, the height of foolishness. Dionysius was the god of wine and merriment. He was the party god. His worship involved feasts of drunkenness and sexual perversion. Prostitutes served as priestesses of Dionysius. There was one other famous center in Pergamos. In the lower city set another temple. This one to the Roman god of healing, Asclepius. The temple of Asclepius doubled as a spa. Ill and depressed people from all over the empire would journey to Pergamos to be treated. The cult of Asclepius offered dream therapy and early forms of psychiatry and many occult-type cures. In fact, the god of Asclepius was symbolized by a snake on a stick. This image has been adopted by the American Medical Association as their logo. In the temple of Asclepius, non-poisonous snakes were allowed to roam free. And one of the therapies was to lie all night in the temple and to just let the snakes sort of crawl all over your body. Hey, if a pharmacist had prescribed that kind of therapy for me, he would have deserved the slap in the face. <laughs> Years later, in the reign of Diocletian, a few Christian stonecutters were martyred by Roman authorities when they refused to carve these images of the snake god. Christian believers obviously associated Asclepius and the snake with Satan, as did Jesus. Thus, in his letter, he refers to Pergamos as Satan's throne. Notice in verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. You know, whenever I hear those words, I think of a story my father tells. Fifty years ago, my dad, he was employed with the phone company, and he worked on the mainframe. At, time, at the time, my stay-at-home stay mom, stay mom started receiving obscene phone calls while dad was at work. Well, since he had access to the mainframe, he could trace where the calls originated. He tracked them to an address. One day, dad waited outside the house, and he studied the young man who was making the calls. He knew what the kid was wearing that day, and he knew the car that he drove. Later that night, my dad called the boy, and he warned him, I know where you dwell. <laughs> I know where you live. In essence, he was saying, you call my wife again, and I'm coming after you. Mom never got another obscene phone call. And yet, that's not the tone that I hear from Jesus. He's not threatening them. He's encouraging the church. He's saying, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Jesus is saying, I know you live in this terribly pagan place. You're surrounded by temptation and opposition. 
like a San Francisco or a Las Vegas. The satanic influence here was strong and heavy in Pergamos. Satan and his demons had a tighter grip on this city than he did on cities like Jerusalem or Ephesus. In essence, Pergamos was a tough place to be a Christian. The spiritual climate was particularly sinister in Pergamos. And you know, that can be true of certain cities or families or high schools or workplaces or certain colleges or certain hangouts. The evil influence there is just more prevalent. Jesus knew this was true of Pergamos. Satan had a grip on this city, but there were believers there who had a grip on Jesus. Verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now we know very little about this Antipas. You could say that he, along with many more like him, is a man unknown to the history books, but in the eyes of God he was a hero. There is a tradition that says that this Antipas was the faithful and fearless pastor of the church at Pergamos. When he refused to bow his knee to the emperor, he was cooked alive inside the belly of the bronze bull at the altar. What a gruesome death. However he died, Jesus points to Pastor Antipas with pride. And he calls him not just a faithful martyr. He says, this was my faithful martyr. I like that. Antipas' sacrifice, like all sacrifices for the cause of Christ, is cherished by our Lord Jesus. He calls him my faithful martyr. The name Antipas might also give us a clue as to this man's character. It actually means against ancestors. You know, a huge part of paganism is ancestor worship. The gods and goddesses of the ancient world existed to connect people to their deceased loved ones. Like the beliefs of North American Indians, local Greeks thought they received guidance and help from their forefathers. Antipas considered this superstition. He said, trust in Jesus alone. That was Antipas's practice. And in the end, it got him killed. Apparently, their pastor's example, though, did embolden the church at Pergamos. Jesus says of them, You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Here's a church that was willing to take a stand. When push came to shove, when their backs were against the wall, they refused to bow their knee to the emperor or to Zeus, even if it cooked their goose. The church at Pergamos is commended by Jesus for bravely stopping short of denying their faith. But, isn't there more to being a disciple of Jesus than just refusing to deny your faith? Just holding fast His name? What about living for the Lord? What about growing in your faith and living out the will of God? It's good not to retreat. It's good not to deny His name. But what are you doing to advance the faith and grow in Christ? There is more to it. And this is why, as with most of the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus follows his commendation with some correction. He writes in verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Now Jesus draws on this story from the Old Testament. You'll find Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24 and then again in Numbers chapter 31. Balaam first comes to our minds as the prophet who had that conversation with the donkey. You remember the talking donkey? He had a conversation with a donkey and, I, and I'm not saying it was his boss or his teenager or even his spouse. I mean a real donkey. Balaam had a chat with a real life Mr. Ed. Actually, Balaam was a sorcerer by trade. He was an occult practitioner, a wizard we might call him. He was an ancient Harry Potter. He was an oracle for hire. He doled out curses for a fee. When Moses led the nation of Israel through the wilderness, they passed through Moab. This upset King Balak. The king didn't like Israel trespassing his borders, and so he went to the Yellow Pages to hire a wizard. He hired Balaam to cast a curse on his enemy. But each time that Balaam tried to open his mouth and utter a curse, out came a blessing. God kept sabotaging his efforts. God refused to allow Balaam to curse Israel. And this angered King Balak. This is not what Balaam had been paid to do. I mean, he's getting good bucks. He's getting premium wizard wages. Balaam needed to put up or shut up, come up with a curse or forfeit the purse. This got Balaam's attention. See, he was a greedy guy. Money was his motivation. And Balaam could care less about, a big, about blessing God's people if it meant a big payday for uttering a curse. Balaam admitted to the king that God was more powerful than he, that God's blessing had trumped his curses. And I should pause here. Let, let me note. Did you know that if all the voodoo priests, if all the voodoo witch doctors in Haiti tried to curse us, did you know they couldn't? Why? Because God has promised to stand in their way. If all the voodoo doctors in, in New Orleans wanted to put a curse on me, they couldn't do it. Because Jesus promises to protect me, to protect me and you from the evil one. 1 John 4 verse 4 promises us, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I have that confidence. And so do you if you know Jesus. God is greater than Harry Potter. The wizard spells were powerless. But Balaam, you see, still wanted the money. And so to collect his devilish fee, he charged for his counsel. There was one way that the king of Moab could ensure that Israel would shoot itself in the foot. If they enticed Israel to rebel against God, then God himself would do the judging for them. Balaam tells Balak to round up all of the girls in all of the hooters in Moab. Get all of the hooter girls together. And then all of those girls on that video, Moab Goes Wild, bring all of those girls together and then throw in a bunch of kegs, a Budweiser, and then send the beer and the babes into the camp to seduce the men of Israel. Well, Balaam followed his advice. He did exactly as Balaam had suggested. And sadly, it worked. Though God turned back the curse, he had no other choice than to judge Israel's compromise. And this is what happened in Pergamos. 
This church compromised. Hey, when it was denied their faith or die, they were willing to honor the Lord Jesus with their dying. The problem, though, was with their living. They were constantly lowering the bar, dropping the standard. Rather than following the doctor's instructions, they started writing their own prescriptions. It was the wrong dose in Pergamos. Understand, the church is like a ship. You know, ships are made strong and sturdy. They're made to be in the water. But if water gets into the ship, there's problems. And likewise, the church is built by God to be in the world, to be strong, to be sturdy. Our Lord wants us to shine His light and flavor the culture with His gospel and with His grace. But when the world gets into the church, that's when we begin to sink. Compromise is what springs the leak. When the church accepts human wisdom and lives in godless ways and adopts worldly lifestyles, Jesus turns against us. At the temple to Augustus, everyone tipped their hat to the emperor and cooperated with the status quo. Why did these Christians over here have to be so intolerant? At the temple of Athena, the Pergamites were sold the value of free thinking. Just make up your own rules, they were told. Why be a Christian and live in an intellectual straitjacket? At the temple of Dionysius, friends, they let their hair down, man. They partied on the weekend. Everybody was doing it. What's wrong with having a little fun now and then? The Christians, they were just party poopers. Hey, if God made wine and sex, why be limited by antiquated morals? That's what they were saying. And the temple of Asclepius, methods were being used there that were healing, that were helping people. Oh, why get caught up with the power behind them? Why be afraid of a snake? Oh, those Christians, they want to see evil in everything. At the altar of Zeus, the gods of this world seem so powerful, so progressive, so wonderful. Why would anyone humble themselves and join those lackluster Christians? You see, here's what was happening to the Christians at Pergamos. They were under pressure. They were under the gun. They were being challenged and tempted to cave in to the world around them. Compromise here, a little compromise there. You see, these Christians, they wanted to influence their city. They wanted to prove that you could be a Christian and it'd still be cool. Christians do love and are free and have fun. In fact, a life in love with Jesus and submitted to His prescription is really the only way to have real fun and freedom. Without Him, we end up a slave to our own desires. But the believers in Pergamos, they needed to realize that God never achieves His will through moral compromise. Never. When the wisdom of this world contradicts the Bible, we have to come down on the side of the Bible. We have to trust in God's Word, His wisdom. My allegiance to Jesus should take precedent over my loyalty to the status quo. Sex and alcohol isn't just a way to have fun and let off steam. They both have spiritual overtones. How I control my appetites is a matter central to my faith. Am I submitted to God's Spirit or am I a slave to my flesh? See, there's nothing wrong with engaging in the culture of this world. The part, that's the part of the ship being in the water. 
I mean, we can, we can be culturally relevant. We can be creative in our food and in our fashion and our technology and sport and art. We can bring all of these things and use them to the glory of God. As Christians alive in the world, we should be shaping our culture to magnify God as long as we don't buy into the spirit of the age. You see, we can be culturally relevant as long as we're spiritually distinct. What motivates and guides the believer should always be the solid rock of God's Word, not the changing, man-pleasing winds of culture. Compromise happens when we twist or when we water down or swap out or ignore the truth of God to appease the opinions of men. To accommodate their culture, this third church prescribed the wrong dose in Pergamos. You know, the last two weeks we mentioned that not only were these seven churches actual churches, but they also relate to successive periods of church history. And Pergamos is no exception. This is the compromised church. This is the Roman church from the 4th through the 6th centuries A.D. What proved to be the sinister compromise occurred actually on the heels of what seemed to be Christianity's greatest triumph. The year was 312 A.D. Let me take you back to the site, the Tiber River in southern Italy. You see, the emperor had just died. And because there was no clear successor to the throne of Rome, the rule was in dispute. Maxentius and his army marched from the west. General Constantine and his army marched in from the east. The two Roman generals, they collided at the Milvian Bridge. The church historian Eusebius reports that during the battle, Constantine had a vision. He saw the sign of the cross in the sky. And then he heard a voice in Latin say, In hoc signo vinces, or in this sign you shall conquer. Constantine took the vision as a command from God to fight under the banner of Christianity. He did, and he trounced Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. In gratitude, Emperor Constantine ended Rome's persecution of Christianity and overnight made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Imagine the impact of Constantine's conversion. I mean, suddenly, out of the catacombs, streams these delighted Christians... Constantine ordered the women of Rome, or he ordered his uh, army to engage in these mass baptisms. And then to encourage the women of Rome to become Christians, the emperor promised new silk dresses to all who were baptized. The pagan priests of Mars and Venus were also converted. Sadly, in their rush to embrace Christianity, no one ever considered the genuineness of any of these conversions. You see, for the first Christian workers... They worked because they loved God, because they wanted to serve. All of a sudden now, under Constantine, Christian workers were getting paid. Church buildings, for the first time, were getting erected. Men who had survived the arena were now suddenly occupying seats of power. Christianity had gone from the outhouse to the penthouse. And its effect upon the church was subtle but sinister. Donald Grain Barnhouse, he writes this summation. The rags of persecution give way, gave way to softer garments, and the church began to enjoy the feel of silk upon its flesh. Thus, the Pergamos stage of church history came into being 
when the church was married to the world. Compromise entered. No longer was devotion to Jesus the church's top priority. Now it was all about convenience and power and control. Constantine wanted everyone to embrace his new religion. He wanted Christianity to be cool. You've heard that before. So to make the faith more cool, more palatable to the masses of Rome, he Christianized many of the former pagan holidays and rituals by attaching to them Christian significance. The Roman festival of Ishtar or Easter, the fertility goddess with her bunnies and eggs and fertility rites was merged with our celebration of the resurrection. What emerged from all this was a spirit of compromise. It was a mixed marriage. It was a new brand of Roman Christianity which included formerly pagan practices that had no real biblical basis whatsoever. Suddenly, things like praying for the dead and the veneration of the saints and Mary and purgatory and the use of icons and celibacy of the priesthood, all these kinds of things entered in. The list goes on. Over time, these compromises with paganism distracted worshipers from the centrality of Jesus and the simplicity of faith and the supremacy of God's Word. In retrospect, Constantine's strategy did far more harm than good. God never accomplishes His purposes through compromise. This is why we give very little credence to church tradition. Our model for faith and conduct has to be the book of Acts, the early church, not the church traditions that came later. In fact, many of those traditions are just not biblical. Here's my point. Compromise is never God's strategy. When the church flirts with the world and incorporates pagan ideas with Christian truth rather than grow strong and strengthen the church, it weakens us. It's been said a compromised church preaches a gospel that if it were a poison wouldn't hurt and if it were a medicine it wouldn't heal. We become impotent. We forget that in the long run, people need a powerful gospel, an undiluted gospel, an uncompromised gospel, a message that can truly save a man or woman from the clutches of Satan and transport them into the kingdom of God's light. My son Mac has been away at college and he's trying to find a church. He told me he attended one recently that opened up with a couple of secular songs. He said, Dad, it was entertainment. There wasn't any real worship going on. Then the pastor delivered a message that was more like a pep rally talk. Rather than a challenge from God's word and a call to repentance. Just a sermonette for Christianettes. And Matt complained. He wanted more meat on the bone. He needed some spiritual beef to chew on. And this is Jesus' complaint with the Pergamos church. In fact, the Lord has one more beef. Verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Again now, what in the world are the Nicolaitans? We talked about this back with the church in Ephesus. Just so you know, Nicolaitan isn't a type of ice cream. That's Neapolitan, not Nicolaitan. We identified the Nicolaitans earlier in chapter 2. Nikon or Nike means conquer. Laos or laity means common people. Thus the Nicolaitans were religious leaders who ruled over the common folk. 
You see, prior to Constantine, the church met in homes and even in the catacombs. There were few paid pastors. Unlike other religions, Christianity had no professional priestly caste. But once Christianity became the favored religion of Rome and public monies began to flow into the coffers of the church, suddenly great cathedrals sprang up. In addition, a hierarchy of professional clergy developed. As a result, a gap grew between pastors and their people. In the beginning of the church, all believers were ministers. And the greatest in the church was the servant of all. Ephesus, the apostolic church, was commended for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Servant leadership was the model that Jesus left to his church. But by the age of Pergamos, an entitlement mentality had developed among church leaders. In their minds, the church existed to support the pastor rather than the pastor being there to serve the people. You know, it's interesting to me how the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans goes together. A compromised church is all about convenience. You see, the bar of behavior gets lowered and belief gets diluted so that it'll make it easier for the congregation to comply and to feel like they're Christians even though they're not really doing what God's requiring. And the same is true for leadership. When pastors refuse to serve and spiritual authority is doled out rather than being earned, again, it's all about what's easy. Recently, I spoke to a new pastor from another state who told me the current trend among church planners is to gain full-time support from the outset of their ministry. Oh, you can accomplish more, he said, by giving all of your time to church stuff. I politely disagreed. I told him that in the beginning, the one thing that a new pastor lacked that he needed most was credibility. And what better way to gain personal credibility than to work a job and be willing to support yourself while the church grows until it becomes able to support you. This is how I started. This is how most Calvary chapels launch. For several years, I, I worked a warehouse job and then a janitor's job as I learned to pastor. It was a great way to prove my devotion to Christ and my love for His church. Our Lord closes His letter to the compromised church with a call to repent. Verse 16. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. You think Jesus is a little upset? What a warning here. Recall how Jesus introduced himself in verse 12? He who has the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus threatens to pull a knife on the church at Pergamos. Imagine Jesus in a knife fight with his own church. He says, I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now obviously you and I know from Hebrews 4 verse 12 and other passages that the Bible... The Word of God is that which is sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh, your Bible may appear to consist of nothing but paper and cowhide, but spiritually speaking, it's razor sharp, man. It's made of cold steel. And your Bible is two-edged. God's Word cuts coming and going. Hey, before we use it as a sword on the devil, the great physician may just need to use it as a scalpel on you. The Bible can dissect our motives and it can scrape clean the infection. It cuts coming and going. It's great in combat. But it's also great for compromise. 
It's interesting, the citizens of Pergamos, they were under the sword of Rome. This was evident in the temple of Augustus as the people paid homage to the emperor. But the Christians in Pergamos, they were under a different sword. They brought all of their lives under the authority of God's sword, His word. Have you done the same? If not, you need to repent. You've been worshiping in the wrong temple. The temple of free thought or status quo or self-gratification and pleasure or self-help. You need to trust in the doctor's prescription and stop trying to write your own. We need to bring all of our lives under the authority of God's sword. This is so important. For three promises are made to the person who ceases to compromise and brings all of his life under the jurisdiction of the Word of God. Jesus listened for us, beginning in verse 17, he writes, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Jesus will satisfy your soul with sweet bread if you stop compromising and bring all of your life under the authority of God's Word. Hey, all that you give up to follow Him, all that you've missed out on by staying away from the Acropolis, the wisdom and the status and the pleasure and the peace of this world, He will make up to you through the sweet manna. You remember how God fed Israel in the desert? With manna or with bread from heaven. It appeared mysteriously every morning. It contained all of their daily nutrition. And it tasted good too. It was sweet like honey. It satisfied them for 40 years. And this is how Jesus promises to satisfy you and me. With the hidden or with the spiritual manna. It isn't something that we see or even know how it appears. It's hidden from our physical senses. But when we stop compromising and pledge all to Jesus, He suddenly reveals this sweetness in our hearts. Jesus feeds us with spiritual sweetness and spiritual sustenance. He lets us eat of the hidden manna. And along with this sweet bread, Jesus makes us another promise, and I will give Him a white stone. This has a number of beautiful meanings. You know, a trial judge in a Roman court would use a white stone to announce a person's innocence. A white stone was also an invitation to a party and both apply to believers who overcome. Our past is cleared away by a full and free forgiveness. Our future anticipates a banquet with a king. We've been given a white stone that cleanses our past and guarantees our future. And then finally... On the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Jesus promises those who overcome a brand new name. I love this. In fact, any man who was given a girl's name at birth and has been forced, forced to tough it out through this life with a name like Sue or Sandy can really, really appreciate this promise of a new name. I'm going to get a new name. In heaven, I'm going to be Rocky. Or Bear. I like Bear. Or Jack Bauer or something. Chuck Norris or something. Something really manly. It's going to be my reward. Actually, it probably won't be a name that anyone knows but me and Jesus. 
For notice he says, no one knows it except him who receives it. I mean, I mean in heaven, you'll probably still call me Sandy, but Jesus is going to have this special personal name that he's going to call me. It's going to be like a pet name. You know, little pet names that lovers have for each other. Sugar, dumpling, pumpkin, you know, stuff like that. I mean, if we get through this murky, muddy life where nothing seems clear, where the world around us is trying to shove us into its mold and define for us who we are by what we do and how much we have rather than who we are in Christ, if I live with no compromise, when I bring all of my life under the authority of God's Word, in the end, my reward is going to be a new name. Jesus is going to give me a new name. I'm going to be His. He's going to be mine. And to prove it, I'll have a special name that's just between Him and me. What it'll be, I have no idea. But I can't wait to hear Him say it. Don't compromise. And in the end, you'll eat sweet bread, and you'll get a white stone, and you'll be called a new name. That's worth living for. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for your love for your people, that you would warn us, that you would warn us of the dangers out there, and that you would warn us of the danger of compromise, both moral and doctrinal, theological. Lord, that you would warn us about the dangers of compromise. Lord, help us. To, to hold the standard. Help us this morning, Lord, to take inventory of our lives, to think about how we handle our money and how we interact in our relationships and, and our work ethic and how we use our leisure time, that we just take inventory of all of our lives and think, you know, how have I been doing? Have I been making up my own rules? Have I been sort of free-thinking all this and, and coming up with my own answers? Lord, if we have, forgive us. And help us this morning, Lord, to bring it all under your sword for your inspection, for your, for your correction. Help us bring it all, Lord, under the jurisdiction of your word and allow your word to have its cutting effect in our own lives, in our own hearts. Help us, Lord. Eliminate compromise from our lives and live a life that's pure and holy to you. To live a life that overcomes. And we'll look forward, Lord, to the sweet bread, to the white stone, to the new name. Thank you for these promises. They are worth living for. Give us the grace to do so this coming week. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.